the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump leaving Walter Reed yesterday evening, heading back to the White House. He's got stuff to do, like get a Supreme Court justice confirmed next week. And uh, here was the message he delivered to the American people upon his return to the White House and to work. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center, and it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went. I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk. There's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better and maybe I'm immune. I don't know. In 1933, FDR and the occasion of his inauguration speech said, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzed needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. The D.C. press corps in 2020 now says the only thing we have to fear is not being afraid. And that is what they're promoting in response to Trump's uh, return to the White House. To wit, Ben Tracy, who is the White House correspondent for CBS News. Yes, seriously. He tweeted this. I felt safer reporting in North Korea than I currently do reporting at the White House. This is just crazy. It is, but it's not what you're saying is crazy. He added, for context, folks, this is in reference to the COVID-19 outbreak at the White House. Apparently, he hasn't seen the data on COVID-19, even though he's the White House correspondent for CBS News. It's just remarkable, the hysteria that continues from the unhinged D.C. press corps. Uh, The uh, better things get, the worse they need to make it in order to perpetuate their narrative. And so... That's what they're doing for more on all of this, plus the context of some of the work ahead and legal matters like the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, like the prospect, the threat from the left of court packing. Uh, Here comes the judge. She is Janine Pirro, Emmy winning host of Justice with Judge Janine on the Fox News Channel, of course, author of the recently released Don't Lie to Me and Stop Trying to Steal Our Freedom. Janine Pirro, thanks for joining us, Judge. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. 
You know, it's a funny thing uh, what Trump said about letting it dominate. Not a funny thing. Ha ha funny. But it's funny the way it's being received. Don't let this dominate you. Don't let that run your lives. Essentially, what a lot of medical experts have said, we have to learn to live with COVID. And oh, by the way, taking risk in life is part of life. And if you're not allowed to take risk in life, then you're not a free person. Exactly. And, you know, I think it is rather shameful that people like the reporter that you just mentioned said he felt safer in North Korea. You know, this has nothing to do with COVID. You realize that this is all about hate for Donald Trump. The fact that Donald Trump can get the coronavirus at the age of 74, go to the Walter Reed Hospital and sit there with a suit on and a starch shirt and continue to work and be concerned about the American people, the economy, the stimulus and what's going on with the market and unemployment. I know that because he called me from Walter Reed, tells you that this man is interested in America. He's interested in making it go forward. And as these of these left wing uh, reporters start making these crazy statements it's not about their protection i mean for the longest time even they didn't wear masks and then all of a sudden they decide to wear masks but look the president got covid he's defeated covid it appears that he is back at work and that he is full throttle and it's like anything else when you get cancer you can't make cancer the centerpiece of your life I had it. I know it. And this is what the president is saying. You lead from the head of the group and then you succeed. Otherwise, you'll be Joe Biden hiding in the bunker. I mean, can you imagine Joe Biden? He's so worried about COVID. The guy will never come out of the East Wing, the bedroom in the East Wing. You think he's going to meet with leaders every day? He's going to deal with the issues of this country? No, he can't even talk after 10 o'clock in the morning. Wait, you You spoke to uh, President Trump while he was at Walter Reed. Were you the one who ordered all those Domino pizzas for the supporters outside? <laughs> Is that was that you? No, I wasn't. Oh, no, I wasn't. I want to get your take on this. It seems like the the Democrat socialists on the Hill are flailing when it comes to trying to tube the Amy Coney Barrett nomination. They've already moved to the petition phase, which uh, normally doesn't happen till the actual hearing. Uh, you've got fifteen hundred people, some of whom uh, were uh, uh, are from Rhodes College, where Amy Coney Barrett did her. Uh, did her undergrad, uh, saying that, uh, let me quote from the petition, we believe both her record and the process that has produced her nomination are diametrically opposed to the values of truth, loyalty, and service that we learned at Rhodes. And, you know, the last thing we want to do is violate the values of Rhodes College in this country. Let me tell you something. The hate, the jealousy, the envy, the political hurdles that people put up, you know, that's why Rhodes don't lie to me and stop trying to steal our freedom. They'll say or do anything in order to get raw political power. They don't want her on the bench because a she will cement the conservative uh, majority for, for decades to come. And that's why Joe Biden, Bozo Biden, won't even answer the question as to whether or not he'll pack the court. He won't answer anything on the filibuster. He won't answer whether D.C. And, and Puerto Rico will be states as if, you know, he's, if he hides the answers, you know, we're going to say, oh, great, he's my man. He's not going to tell me what he's going to do. Joe Biden is a Trojan horse for the left, for the most leftist socialist policies. And with Kamala Harris, who talks about the Harris administration, and so does he. He talks about the Harris administration. You have to say to yourself, what are these people not telling us? But their goal is to simply destroy Amy Coney Barrett. Look, she is of unparalleled intellect, integrity, experience. I mean, she's on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Give me a break. They don't like her. They don't like uh, who she is. She is a woman who is proud of her religion. You know, deal with it. The country was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. We've got people who are trying to close down churches and synagogues because of COVID. But you want to go out there and protest in the thousands? Have at it. This is your time in history. 
Americans want to go to work. No, you can't go to work, but you want to buy booze and weed and alcohol, have at it. Uh, I wanted to get, uh, as an officer of the court, I wanted to get your, your explanation on something, too. You mentioned the, the court packing, and we'll see if Kamala Harris is forced to answer the question at Wednesday night's vice presidential debate. But um, why is court packing such a bad idea? I, I don't know that everybody understands. There's a lot of discussion okay. about it, but nobody under, nobody perhaps some people don't understand why it's such a bad idea. It's a great question. Look, the Constitution does not limit the number of justices. I think during FDR, they tried to pack the court. They found that that was not it it was not a good it was not a good experience. But uh, for the most part, nine has been the number. They want to pack the court because when they get into power, they want to be able to put liberal justices who will then determine the fate of this country based upon the number of justices they get in. So if legitimately there are nine and we have the opportunity to put conservative justices on, they want to put like another five on to make sure that it's all liberal. The problem with that is that then there's no limit. You turn the Supreme Court into another legislative body of activist judges in robes who are passing laws instead of interpreting the Constitution. They're looking to change the goal of the bench. And I was a judge. The, the goal of a judge is to interpret the law and precedent. It's not to make up new law so that your side wins every time they come in. It's, Nine has been the number. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it's uh, essentially what Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued last year in an interview. It would jeopardize judicial independence. Isn't that right? It jeopardizes independence and it creates a it creates a slant in one way or another based upon politics and not on the election by the people. And they're trying to pack the court so that they get their 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 decisions all approved and, in fact, make law as uh, as uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did in the Lily Ledbetter case. She was an activist judge. She was a wonderful judge. I, I, I'm a big admirer of hers. But in Lily Ledbetter, she she interpreted the Constitution to include a law that after she signed the decision, she went to Congress with Obama and then they had the law passed. It's supposed to be the reverse. They and, comment on laws. And, and the interesting thing, too, since you brought up the uh, effort by FDR to pack the court in the, the late 30s, it was Democrats who enjoyed big supermajorities in both the Senate and the House that rejected his plan because at that time they actually recognized the constitutional danger of impinging upon judicial independence that we're discussing today. So back in the day, FDR exactly. Democrats yep. actually opposed that court packing plan. I don't know how many people know that. She is uh, Janine yeah, Pirro. She's the uh, Emmy-winning host of Justice with Judge Janine on Fox. That's 8 p.m. Chicago time. Uh, and she's also the author of the recently released Don't Lie to Me and Stop Trying to Steal Our Freedom. Judge Janine, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book and continued success with the show. Thanks so much. Take care. Suddenly the heavens roll. Suddenly the rain came down. Suddenly was washed away. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Moving from uh, our discussion on everything ranging from COVID to Coney Barrett with uh, Judge Jeanine Pirro, we're uh, now joined by Bob Brody, who's a public relations consultant, author of the memoir, Playing Catch with Strangers, A Family Guy, reluctantly, parenthetically, comes of age. And uh, the topic is uh, how Trump is uh, 
responding in this moment as an example of uh, living with COVID and uh, ostensibly and hopefully conquering COVID. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be with you, Dan. Um, So uh, you write in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the opportunity presented by the president's infection to uh, uh, for him to serve as a sort of a spokesman for coronavirus awareness. Uh, Is coronavirus awareness a a problem is it seems like it's omnipresent. It's tough not to be aware of coronavirus. It's true, but I think he's uniquely qualified to draw attention to the problem and to talk about his own experience with the condition and also to educate people. And and he's uh, well, he certainly shared his own view and experience uh, from his infection over the last 72 hours as he was at Walter Reed and then announcing, of course, last night that he would be returning from Walter Reed to the White House, which he's done. This has uh, not necessarily been received well by the D.C. press corps, but it doesn't seem like much that he can or would do would be received that way. And so I, I don't know. It seems to me, I mean, from a PR perspective, here, here's what I see Trump doing. wonder if you agree. The way that he sort of appeals to common sense Americans is he looks at what the D.C. press corps is demanding of him. Then he violates their norms He spurs them to come apart at the seams in silly manners, oftentimes, and he accentuates his position as a practical guy dealing with an unreasonable and unfair foil. And, um, you know, and and politically and to some extent policy wise, because it works politically, this has worked for him so far. We'll see if it persists on November 3rd, but certainly it's got him a lot farther along than any of those people in the press corps thought he would have gotten. Yeah, well, I have to tell you, Dan, my point in putting together the piece was to be strictly apolitical and to be nonpartisan and to really focus on this as a public health matter as opposed to a political issue. Yeah. And so that's my perspective. He has a chance to do some good um, given that he now has the condition and has a personal experience that he can talk about. Um, whether he's going to do it, I think it's fair to say, is in considerable doubt. There are a lot of people who are in this country who I think are either not taking this pandemic seriously enough or are just ill-educated about it or have some misapprehensions about it. And so he has the bully pulpit. I mean, he has the people are going to listen to him. There are a lot of people in this country who are going to listen to what he has to say. And that includes people who are now, as far as I'm concerned, needlessly putting themselves and others at risk. So he literally has a chance to save lives. Well, that's all I'm thinking about. Okay. well, he he, I mean, certainly the experience of uh, uh, using some of the therapeutics um, will disabuse anybody who I, I guess needs disabusing that those therapeutics could work, assuming he gets to the other side of this officially, uh, remdesivir, uh, dexamethasone the uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies from Regeneron. I mean, all this, these have been publicized as part of his treatment. So on the treatment side, he certainly has some things to say. He also said something yesterday upon leaving Walter Reed that, uh, you know, you can't let the, the, the virus dominate our lives. And, and that is not inconsistent with what we've heard from a lot of public health professionals, that we need to learn to live with COVID because even if a vaccine arrived tomorrow, uh, it's still going to take time for distribution. We don't know what the level of efficacy would be and other such uh, open-ended questions. And so 
you can't just uh, put your head in the sand either. And it seemed to me when he said, don't let it dominate your lives, that that was something perhaps to encourage people to be proportional in their response to the virus. You know what? I'll take the second part of that first, because I agree that we shouldn't let it dominate our lives. Um, I, I am averse to people running scared, whether it's terrorists and 9-11 or it's the coronavirus pandemic or anything else in life for that matter. I, I, I think we should all refuse to be governed by, by fear and certainly by panic and by hysteria. Um, but at the same time, I do think that people need to be not just mindful of it, um, vigilant about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so we need we need to try to keep ourselves safe. The first part, though, I have to say, you're talking about treatment, and yes, that's wonderful. It's all well and good. It's encouraging news that there are valuable therapeutics. But I think what's missing there is the other big part of the equation here which is prevention. I mean, the fact is, it's great if we can treat this disease. What we really have to do is prevent it. Right, although you, you, we hear from a lot of uh, public health experts uh, that, uh, you know, prevention, yes, there are things you can do to be responsible, take uh, evasive action to try to prevent the spread. But, um, you know, it, it's it ultimately, over time, this is going to be a combination of people getting infected and recovering combined with a vaccine that gets us on the other side of this pandemic. That's sort of the uh, arguably consensus opinion from the scientific community. Yes. Well, I, Hey, I'm rooting for the vaccine. I'm sure. Me too. All the I'm rooting for whatever is going to work because uh, people are getting sick. People are being hospitalized. People are being put on ventilators and people are dying. And we need to take every measure we possibly can, every precaution to to try to stop it from happening. And I know we're making some progress and I and I'm encouraged by all the progress we've made. Um, And the reason I wrote the piece is that I think the president has a chance to really accelerate that progress. And you, you, you in, in, your, in your piece, uh, just to, to analogize this, so you gave some uh, good examples of high-profile people who've been afflicted with other maladies, uh, from from Sally Field to uh, Alonzo Mourning. And so, just get, you know, give an example of what you're uh, what you're thinking about when you say somebody can be a spokesman for for a particular illness. Yeah, I mean, I had the opportunity over the years to work on some celebrity health education campaigns, public health campaigns, and um, so Dan Reeves, for example, was uh, had a heart attack uh, back in 1998, and then got underwent quadruple bypass surgery, and and miraculously was able to take the sidelines again as a coach for the Atlanta Falcons. Something like four or five weeks later, um, and won the NFC Championship, and we were able to enlist him as a spokesperson, and he was doing interviews and doing appearances, talking about his experience with heart disease and why people should watch their cholesterol and their diet and exercise more frequently. And he was terrific. I mean, uh, the truth is when you have somebody who's well-known and who's well-respected like Dan Reeves, people pay attention. And that was my thinking when it came to the president. People will pay attention to what the president has to say. Uh, in a way that they would not um, with, in some cases, their, their own doctors. 
Mm. Bob Brody, public relations consultant, author of the memoir, Playing Catch with Strangers, A Family Guy, reluctantly comes of age. Bob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Moving from COVID to the November 3rd election, more generally, a new report from the Public Interest Legal Foundation shows uh, some concerns about um, election fraud. There are currently about 350,000 deceased registrants on the roll, voter rolls in 41 states. The worst states in this regard, Michigan, Florida, New York, Texas, and California, which account for roughly 51% of the dead voters who are still mistakenly registered. There's two swing states in that list, as you, I'm sure, picked up. Even worse, state records show that about 8,000 of these deceased voters cast ballots from the grave in the 2016 presidential election. 6,700 did so again in 2018. Also, 8,300-odd individuals registered and voted in two different states during the 2018 election. 43,000 individuals were registered more than once at the same address and cast second votes in the 2016 election. 5,500 voters cast ballots twice in the same state from two different registration addresses. So just to highlight some of the substantial concerns that are accentuated by the preemptory mail-in ballot push from so many blue state election authorities and jurisdictions within those states. So again, when you think about the 2016 election and how close some of the states were in terms of the popular vote, and when you just hear to the principle that no American should be deprived their franchise illicitly, and fraud would be an illicit deprivation of the franchise. This seems to be a legitimate continuing concern for discussion. To help us with that, we're pleased to be joined again by Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative. This seems to uh, fold in with uh, your recent piece from just a couple of days ago. What if no one accepts the election result? Well, if Trump were to lose, uh, there may be some good reasons, at least before there is potential litigation, depending on how close the election would be, with respect to some of the information that the Public Interest Legal Foundation has unearthed and some of what we've heard anecdotally as well. Yeah, we're facing in some ways a perfect storm right now of electoral factors that could cause some huge problems. One of the ones that you just mentioned, which is the possibility of fraud, the left loves to say that it doesn't exist. It's never been documented as existing. That is not true. Uh, we have both anecdotal and some database evidence that it does. And, you know, they're very worried about how, you know, requiring a, a pre- presentation of an ID at the, the the polls that government could take away your right to vote. Well, if your vote is canceled out by fraud, that's also taking away your right to vote. So this is a serious issue. And then we have uh, the fact that we're going to have a record number of mail-in ballots happening this time around. They don't want polling places to become hotspots. And we've seen kind of dress rehearsals in states where they also had record numbers of mail-in ballots. And there was calamity, right? It took them weeks to declare the winners. Initially, some of the ballots were improperly discarded. There was chaos. It was certainly not very encouraging. And then you have a climate where uh, people are really fired up, where they're scared of the other side. Everybody's very polarized right now, and they very actively, with fists clenched, do not want the other side to win. Passions are running high. And, you know, you just wonder into the midst of the storm, what's going to happen on Election Day? You hope for the best and you hope that the authorities can get it right. Well, the other matter, too, is you've got all these pending lawsuits 
coming from both directions with respect to how states and localities are administering their elections and the, the notion that some of them may not be fully adjudicated by the time the election rolls around. And if they're, they're filed in states that turn out to be very close and the results are going to be challenged. I mean, now you have layers of litigation to wade through in terms of trying to determine who won a particular state and, and perhaps who won the whole thing. Yeah, already 300 lawsuits, more than 300 lawsuits actually have been filed with regards to the election. Most of them have to do with mail-in ballots. Most of them were filed by Republicans who are worried that there could be abuse. But nevertheless, all of these are going to present a challenge. And what you could have happen is that if there's any unsurety or any irregularities on or after Election Day, you could have either side turn around and say, well, wait a minute, there's still lawsuits rising up through the system. We haven't sorted this out yet. Given the sheer number that there's likely to be, that could create mass confusion. And let's remember something else, too. Right now, there are only eight justices on the Supreme Court, which means that if we have another situation like we did in 2000, or perhaps even worse, where you need a single national court to to figure out what's going on, you know, to unfortunately decide the result and in that case, stop the recounts that were happening in Florida, if you need that, you could have a possibility where the judges split 4-4. And then that throws it back down to the lower courts. But again, there's multiple lawsuits, multiple lower courts. In that confusion, who knows what will happen? You could potentially have both sides declare the winner, and then I don't know what occurs. The republic is in some serious trouble. Well, or you have, Uh, or or you had a five-four decision, but the left doesn't recognize Amy Coney Barrett as a legitimate justice. She's arguably the deciding vote, and you still have uh, sort of what you're describing the prospect of trying to answer the question, what if half the country doesn't accept the ultimate result? Yeah, I mean, in that case, they can go wine into their hats for the next four years. I mean, that's not... Well, that's true. If, it is, if they want to say that Amy Coney Barrett isn't legitimate because of what Mitch McConnell did all the way back in 2016, I think from any legal standpoint, that's not going to be accepted. When we come back with uh, Matt Purple, it seems to me this is a topic, among others, that may be ideal for Mike Pence to tackle in the Wednesday debate, who uh, I think does a better job of calmly explaining things that have some layers to them than perhaps the president does. I want to do a little bit of VP debate preview with Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Matt Purple. He's a senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. And uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, the November 3rd election and the prospects that the results will not be accepted by half the country and uh, that the litigation could be complicated and protracted, a topic that uh, we've been discussing for some weeks now, as has the president. Uh, and... Um, Against this backdrop, you have a vice presidential debate tomorrow night, which takes on perhaps a historic interest because of uh, the age of the two principals, not to mention President Trump's COVID-19 infection, even though he seems to and hopefully is on the other side of it or will be by Wednesday night. Uh, And Bill McGurn uh, asked this question uh, in his piece on the in preview of the debate in The Wall Street Journal that he thinks a lot of voters will be asking, particularly those who tune into the debate, which is, is this the candidate I will really be choosing when I vote for president on November 3rd? Do you you think that will be more prevalent than it uh, normally is, even with respect to Trump supporters? 
or or, or those yeah. who are open minded to supporting Trump? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure the public will regard it that way, but I think that it should be uh, because these are potentially could be two uh, future presidents. You know, you could have a situation where one of the, the current president or Joe Biden becomes unable to exercise his duties. And so it has to fall to Mike Pence or Kamala Harris, certainly. And uh, and so I think we need to watch this carefully and examine these two. They haven't had a huge amount of public spotlight. Uh, Mike Pence is, has kind of lurked in the vice presidential shadows, as, as vice presidents often do. Kamala Harris is a very short-serving senator. Uh, she was in the primary debates, but otherwise the public hasn't had much exposure to her. And I, I think we ought to w- watch them carefully. And I think, by the way, that Mike Pence is probably going to put away Kamala Harris. I, I think it's that interesting you say that. Yeah, yeah, because that, that's not, the perception is he's he's so uh, you know he is. Um, he is he is uh, anti-charismatic. And, and so the perception is that the dynamic, the perception that's being bandied about in the, pre, the D.C. press corps, the dynamic Kamala Harris will, uh, you know, will will outshine Mike Pence, essentially, because he is so staid. I think it's the exact opposite. Mike Pence used to host a radio talk show in Indiana mm-hmm. and was known as Rush Limbaugh on decaf. He was kind of a little bit more drawn back, but he's a very incisive speaker, and I think an incisive arguer, too. And I think whatever happens, he's going to maintain his cool. Uh, He's going to be able to pick apart her arguments. He's very skilled at public speaking. Whereas with her, I I think she's one of the most overrated public figures of our time. I just listen to her, and I don't get anything out of it. It's these clapbacks and these sassy remarks, but once you delve a little bit deeper, it's just air. I can't think of anything that she's ever said that really has stuck for me or that's ever really proven insightful. And look, Tulsi Gabbard was able to basically end her presidential campaign (laughs) at one of the uh, Democratic debates. I don't think that Mike Pence is going to have much of a problem against her. Well, I don't want to do what we did with what what not we, but what so many people did with the Trump Biden debate, which is uh, set expectations so low for Biden that all he had to do was survive the debate to win it um, in the in the in perception wise. But uh, McGurn makes the point, you know, people have short memories. Uh, Tim Kaine was supposed to wipe the floor with Mike Pence. And even The New York Times, uh, the headline after the debate in 2016 was commentators give edge to Mike Pence because Tim Kaine came in, thought he was going to push uh, the uh, demure Pence around. And it just didn't work out that way. Pence is, is an interesting politician and i think the authentic one but he's like a sponge he just takes the arrows and the attacks from no matter how over the top they are and he just sort of uh, absorbs them and turns back and just gives you this midwestern nice answer that you can actually listen to that's in a complete thought in a complete sentence and he comes off well by comparison it seems that's his that's was his approach in 16 and it may very well work against kamala in 20. I completely agree. I think that's a good way to describe it. You know, he, he seems like you could hit him over the head with a mallet and he wouldn't even flinch. It's just <laughs> right, very right, unflappable, right. but without ever coming off as ruthless, you know, in that, that Midwestern way that we, you know, Northeasterners and East Coasters just can't pull off. And I, I think, you know, it, I would encourage your listeners to go back and watch Kamala Harris's cross-examination of uh, Brett Kavanaugh during the, the confirmation hearings. And she really just came off badly. I mean, it, she was pressing him on this question about a law firm here in D.C. that he could not answer. He just did not. It was not in his interest to answer it. And he didn't know who was at that law firm. And she just kept hammering it and hammering it and being very rude and very snide. And, you know, finally, the Republican senators started intervening and saying, is there a point to all this? So I, I think she can 
you know, gin up a good YouTube clip when she wants to. I think she can, uh, you know, exercise a certain degree of arrogance that some people translate as being intelligence. Uh, but I, I think that Pence is by far the more substantial of the two figures. Uh, I wanted to get to this other piece you wrote because uh, it uh, runs concurrent to an op-ed from uh, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and uh, Representative Michael McCall, who uh, uh, is uh, represents the congressional district in Texas and is also in the national security space. Uh, time to get serious about the People's Republic of China. I mean, this just in, not exactly groundbreaking stuff, but but it, it dovetails into something that you write about at the American Conservative with respect to Trump and China and uh, the culture change that he has initiated in terms of uh, understanding and approaching China as a threat to America's interests. Yeah, I think all too often in, in national politics and also in international politics as well, we prize uh, platitudes over actions. You know, if you say the right thing, that's more important than doing the right thing. And China, I think, realized very early on they could go to Davos, the big international gathering, and say the right thing and, and get away with it and sway people. You know, they could talk about uh, globalism even as they were ruthlessly pursuing their own national interest. They could talk about free trade even as they were slapping tariffs on just about every manufacturing good imaginable. And people would eat that up, and especially in the age of Trump, because these European Leaders are so desperate to hear the opposite of what Trump is putting out there. And I, I think finally, with the pandemic, we've had a rubber meets the road moment where people realize, wait a minute, this is just rhetoric. It's just air. It's not how China behaves. China, in reality, uh, is a malefactor on the global stage. Uh, they are, uh, you know, a damaging influence, certainly. And uh, Europe is, seems to be coming around on this question. America has been for a long time. And that's a good thing. He is Matt Purple, senior editor at The American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Building off our conversation with the American conservatives, Matt Purple, before the break. This piece from our friend Selena Zito, Washington Examiner, New York Post. This is in the Post. Selena is invaluable as a member of the D.C. press corps, because she doesn't spend much time in D.C. She's in Pittsburgh and she's out and about in the Rust Belt, mainly talking to actual voters. This is documented nicely in her book, The Great Revolt, about the 2016 election, which has an addendum in advance of November 3rd's election. She uh, talks about suburban women, meet the suburban women who may yet win the election for Trump. Turns out not all suburbs are created equally. Not all suburbs of metropolitan areas are created equally, comprised similarly. And not all women in those suburbs are part of a monolith, as you might think, based on the way it's reported. She starts with a uh, upper Yoder Township, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Johnstown, located in the southwest corner of Cambria County on the foothills of the Laurel Mountains, full of young families and retirees. The homes here are lovely and well-kept. The neighborhood is tidy. The school district highly ranked, and it may end up deciding the 2020 election. Christina Sakmar has lived in Cambria County for most of her life. 
She began as a Democrat, but found herself more aligned with Republicans decades ago and hasn't budged since. An occupational therapist, she is the quintessential suburban white female voter. She voted for Trump in 2016, and she's going to vote for him again. What the media and pundits forget is that Trump didn't win the majority of female voters in 2016, especially in the suburbs of New York or D.C., but he did win just enough of them in suburbs in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, and Florida to help him eke out victories across those states. And to my point, while Trump struggled with women who hold college degrees, he ran strong with white women without college degrees, who were then castigated by champagne socialist woke walkers with college degrees in the suburbs as, you know, not truly women, of course. But in suburbs with fewer college degrees than the national average, places like Adams County, Colorado, outside Denver, Trump ran ahead of Mitt Romney. And that includes in suburban Milwaukee, uh, another case study here, where Carla Muller lives. She came within a hair of not voting for Trump in 2016, but not because of his personality or demeanor, because he didn't have a track record. Now that he does, she's on board. Another reason Trump may want to do a better job of accentuating the record he's amassed come the October 15th debate in Miami. And also this, going back to the point I made uh, early in the show with uh, P- that PR consultant, Bob Brody, about the media and Trump's use of the media as his foil. Miss Mueller doesn't necessarily like Trump's style. She says, I think that in general, the media is just as much of a joke or a disaster as Trump's style is. You can use the word phony. Why can't people just move on to the real issues? We need them to move on to the real issues. We are suffering a pandemic and an economic collapse due to the pandemic. And it's real for her as the mother of two kids because her husband lost his job amid the lockdowns. So we'll see. It's still very much an open question. But, uh, you know, this gives form to the function. This isn't just uh, Trump voters uh, wistfully hoping that uh, the suburbs will produce for him like they produced in 2016. There's actual American families out there who are thinking uh, much the way that I'm thinking and other people are thinking in a practical way in a practical way about the choice before us uh, and what that implies for the future of this country and the future of my place in this country. A lot of people thinking about that, and they're coming down on Trump's side. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We got uh, pronouncements from the WHO as well as the CDC yesterday. WHO saying that um, the best estimates indicate roughly one in 10 people worldwide may have been infected by the coronavirus which would make that more than 20 times the number of confirmed cases. Also, the CDC through uh, uh, its executive director, excuse me, the WHO through its executive director, Dr. Michael Ryan, uh, suggested that we're in for a hell of a ride the world over in the coming months with respect to COVID. But um, point of order, one in 10 people in the world have been infected by COVID is the best estimate from the WHO. So with 1 million deaths, 
that would put the fatality rate at about 0.13%, which is very similar to the seasonal flu, isn't it? In addition to that, the suggestion that has been made by Scott Atlas and others that uh, there are many more people who have been exposed to COVID than we have confirmed in the case counts. So it's more than 10 percent of the American population, for example. We may be closer to her immunity than we think. We don't know. But the combination of moving in the direction of herd immunity through the those who get infected and then recover combined with obviously the prospect of a vaccine gets us on the other side of this. Well, that was the criticism of the CDC by Scott Atlas was criticized by Fauci. But the underlying suggestion that this cross-reactive immunity is a thing and that there may be many more people, there are likely many more people who have been infected and recovered than the case count suggests, that seems to be a real thing, too, based on what the WHO is suggesting, doesn't it? In addition to that, the CDC continuing to um, add confusion to the matter said tiny particles that linger in the air can spread the coronavirus, revising its guidelines on the matter just a few weeks after the health agency had acknowledged the role for the particles and then removed it. It can travel by tiny air particles. No, it can't. Uh, yes, it can. That. Thank you. It's very helpful. No, you, you still still doesn't transmit on surfaces, according to a recent study from UC Berkeley. But CDC continues to be uh, to me a very politic politicized agency, and it is so unhelpful. What does politics do? It destroys. What does politics do when it is uh, in fact science? It destroys like a virus. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Dr. Kevin Pham. He is a medical doctor. That's why I'm calling him doctor. You have to write a prescription to be called a doctor on this show. You have to be able to write a prescription to be called a doctor. He is also a former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So um, the importance of these, uh, let's take them in turn, the WHO projections and uh forward-looking concerns, as well as the CDC's revision on how the virus transmits? So I still don't have a lot of trust in what the WHO says. Mm-hmm. Um, but that having been said, you know, it might not, I don't, I, I don't think it's one in 10 around the world. Um, it might, it might be one in 10 in certain areas, but probably not around the world because the world's a big place and still a lot of, there's still a lot of people in a lot of places um, but what we can say for sure is that whatever the confirmed case number is right now, then the number of actual infected is much higher than that. I don't know if it reaches one in 10, but it, it's, it's certainly higher than what the number of confirmed cases would uh, would suggest. And what the CDC says about um, about airborne transmission, that is that is very interesting because uh, that that guidance is brand brand new from the CDC. We've been under the uh, we've been operating under the assumption that this is transmitted by droplet for a very long time. Um, but you know, based on what we're seeing with infectivity and how how fast the thing spreads, it, it really just, it makes sense that this is a, that this also has a component of airborne transmission. On the topic of President Trump's release from Walter Reed, his doctor Sean Connolly said that he, you know, basically met all the criteria for release. And, and of course, he's the president of the United States. He essentially has 24-7 medical attention as a matter of course, and certainly he will at the White House as he continues to uh, to deal with his bout of 
uh, of this infection. Certainly, and the main thing that I I would be worried about is that there are certain inflammatory markers that um, that that we've seen <clears throat> tracks best with rapidly deteriorating disease, and I, I don't know if they can get those labs from the White House, but getting the getting his lab sample from the White House to the hospital is not going to take very long. So, even if the worst should happen, even if the absolute worst should happen, I mean, short of dying, then he, he'll have rapid uh, access to a hospital facility anyway. So, you know, again, I think he's in pretty good hands right now. And I think he's, um, I think, I think he's, uh, I don't want to prognosticate, he's not my patient, but he has gotten all the, all the latest treatments. And so I, you know, hopefully, hopefully he won't take a t- turn for the worse. <laughs> There'll be another bit of data that we can take a look at when we're looking at yeah. therapy. I mean, I, I, you know, I, obviously we got enough people playing uh, doctor based on their internet medical degrees. Um, so I, I don't want to get you into this trap too. Uh, he's got this experienced team of medical doctors. I mean, good grief. There were two dozen of them at the press conference over the weekend. How many doctors do you right. need? Um, and, uh, but, but, but I mean, th- there's, you know, everybody wants to question everything. Remdesivir, dexamethasone. Why did they do that? What does that indicate? The, the uh, pursuit of uh, emergency youth author- authorization for the Regeneron, uh, monoclonal antibody. I mean, d- is any of that uh, particularly remarkable to you? Uh, none of it is particularly remarkable. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure an EUA for the uh, the polyclonal antibodies will be forthcoming, especially if they deem it safe enough to use for the president. And the, you know, the the science makes a lot of sense. Polyclonal antibodies are basically a product improved convalescent plasma. It's just you don't have to get it from a person who's had it. You just they just uh, develop it themselves. So it could be forthcoming. Hopefully, hopefully it's had an effect, and um, because it could be a potentially very helpful drug uh, in this co- uh, pandemic fight. Uh, where are we uh, in terms of your understanding of the efficacy of masks, the importance of masks? Because I'm I'm looking at a bunch of charts. So these are the the gentlemen and uh, ladies over at RationalGround.com. These are a bunch of people who do chart porn for a living. You know, they're numbers geeks and and uh, statisticians, and some with uh, public health backgrounds. And you look at Miami Dade County, and you look at Hawaii. And you look at um, L.A., Orange, Ventura, San Diego counties, and you look at Kansas and New York City, and you look at West Virginia, and you look at Mississippi and the Philippines, and you look at Peru, and you look at Spain and France, and you look at uh, uh, Sweden and Israel. And what you find is the uh, they track the mask mandates and the uh, case incidents. And what you find is, um, I mean, case incidents spikes despite mask mandates. Now, I, I'm not into the – I'm not – advancing the logical fallacy of one thing necessarily having anything to do with the other. But certainly um, the idea that uh, masks are some sort of uh, prophylactic, the way they're being advertised in the same way that the COVID-19 as a death sentence is being advertised, that just uh, doesn't bear out in terms of the real world on the ground experience. And so we, we know going into this, there was very thin science on masks as preventing the spread. And I wonder if we've gotten any update on that that suggests that uh, this is something that is as critically important as Dr. Redfield over at CDC suggests it is. Um, there hasn't been, there still hasn't been any like really hard science that says that masks work, especially for what they're being, what we're being told that they work for. Um, as, as we've talked about before, I'm very pro-mask, but I do recognize there's no hard science that says that they're going to be as, as effective 
as people make them out to be. And they're actually, I can say for sure that they're not as effective as people make them out to be. People had been criticizing the president for not wearing a mask. And if he was wearing a mask and this would have been prevented, probably this would not have been um, prevented even if he was wearing a mask because that's not how they're working. That's not how that we're trying to get them to work in this circumstance. Uh, Our recommendations to wear a mask is is based on common sense. Um, This is a respiratory disease. Is born on your respiration, so if you block your respiration, then there's a chance that it's going to de- possibly decrease the spread. Uh, and that's basically the science that we're dealing with. That's why we don't support any kind of a mass mandate. It's just not enough there to support it. But you know, if you're in a place where you can't, if you can't distance from another person, then you know it's, it's not going to hurt in most cases to wear a mask to to help decrease the chances of of transmission. That's that's what we're working with right now. He is Dr. Kevin Pham, medical doctor, contributor to the Daily Signal, and former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, thank you for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Campus B takes us to uh, a top five business school in the country, the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. And uh, this comes to me from students uh, at Booth School of Business seeking their MBAs in route to a successful business career. Uh, the premier leadership course is um, where this uh, particular lesson is uh, originates the privilege checklist privilege checklist uh which white privilege checklist these checklists aren't exhaustive but they did help our consultants to get started thinking about their privileges so many of the items on these checklists are especially relevant because of our university's location demographics and politics Encourage you to use these lists and also add items that are particularly pertinent to your center of privilege. Here's the checklist that uh, all the students were to go through. Thinking about this, thinking about this uh, as I give you some examples from the checklist. Top five business school in the country. So you get your MBA at Booth and then you're on your way to a successful career either entrepreneurial or more more likely in corporate America. So you wonder where it is that all these corporate American C-suite types get their cultural Marxism. How did these people, captains of industry, become cultural Marxists? How is it that they bend to Marxist organizations like Black Lives Matter or worse, how is it that they buy all this identitarian claptrap when they live their lives in a meritocratic system, largely meritocratic system? Hmm. 
Yes, tracing it back to their education, imagine. Class privilege, the checklist. I've never worried about whether I'll be able to pay for adequate food or clothing. New products are designed and marketed with my social class in mind. I've never been denied access to community resources or public spaces. (laughs) Pools closed, you can't go there. Oh, that's only for me because I don't have privilege. I can swear or commit a crime without people attributing it to the low morals of my class. Regardless of the season, I can count on my home remaining comfortable temperature. I can afford to visit a healthcare professional multiple times per year. The poor and downtrodden MBA students at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Yeah. White race, ethnicity, cultural privilege. This, you know, these are broken out by category. Of course they are. All holidays important to me have days off from work. People know how to pronounce my name. I'm never mocked or perceived as any threat because of my name. Well, golly, I hope uh, none of these people that are not uh, enjoying privilege watch Key and Peele. A. Aaron, right? Is that uh, an exhibition of privilege? Or is it an exhibition of a sense of humor? Uh, I know the police and other state authorities are there to protect me. Right. Uh, as opposed to targeting others. Implicit. People of my race are widely represented in media, positively as well as negatively. I don't have to think about my race or ethnicity. In fact, I don't really notice it. Uh, it's impossible not to because all anybody talks about on a college campus is, is their race and ethnicity. We've all become identitarian drones or having to resist the identitarian drones. I don't think about it. Please. You're not allowed to not think about it. Citizenship privilege is a category. I know I will be paid at least minimum wage at a job and labor laws will protect me. I've never faced additional security checks or harassment at airport security checks. If I apply for a job, I don't have to worry uh, about what to write under social security number. Having a social security number, being in this country legally, legally is a privilege. Citizenship privilege. If there weren't benefits to citizenship, why even have it? Isn't that what the left wants to do? Eliminate the distinction between being a citizen and a non-citizen? Open borders. Mm -hmm. The premier leadership course at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. You're starting to piece it together how so many of the young people, and including people obviously in the workforce already, most are uh, have a couple of years of the workforce under their belt. They're going back to get their MBA so they can uh, expedite their track up the food chain, right? You get the sense of how they're ingrained in identitarian politics, how this becomes second skin as part of corporate culture that they turn around and perpetuate when in positions of authority. What else is? Well, University of Syracuse, or Syracuse University, I should say, uh, gives us some indication of uh, what else might be, particularly since Syracuse, uh, with uh, reputedly a good comm school, produces so many communications types, broadcasters and the like. 
Uh, turns out that Syracuse University ranks among the weakest schools in the area of free speech on campus, according to the 2020 college free speech rankings released last week by Real Clear Education in partnership with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. The school scored a 39 out of 100 in the survey's self-expression category, meaning only 39 of 100 student respondents on the campus of Syracuse University felt comfortable sharing their viewpoints, meaning 61 out of 100, supermajority, say they do not feel they're able to share their opinions. While those 61 are going to be very comfortable in corporate America where the 39 are in charge and they're not interested in your opinion. Mm-hmm. And they go through on this uh, profile in Syracuse specifically the uh, uh, examples of how Syracuse, Syracuse's commitment to the campus as a free marketplace of ideas has disintegrated over the last 30 years. You know, the typical stuff, uh, speakers uninvited, uh, Halloween costumes <laughs> being a real problem on campus. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have the Pinterest app uh, before the Pinterest lecture, I guess, before making sure as you search for Halloween costumes, you're apprised of what is culturally appropriate and what is not so that you don't culturally appropriate. That's a real thing at Pinterest, one of these social media platforms that I don't use, but I'm sure some of you do or your those in your social circles or your familial circles do. So this is where it's at. How does it become this way? How can people so successful? How can people who otherwise know better? How can people who practice capitalism in their lives not preach capitalism philosophically? Hmm. They go get an MBA from Booth. They do their undergrad at Syracuse. That's how. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Former FBI Director Jim Comey testified last week before the Senate. And um, Andy McCabe, the former Deputy Director, who was fired, supposed to testify. But that's gotten delayed. Remember last week, you still have this nagging problem that was reconfirmed by Jim Comey of him saying under oath. He never directed anybody to leak information to the press and Andy McCabe saying Jim Comey directed him to leak information to the press also under oath. So one of them lied under oath and that means one of them should be indicted for lying under oath. Hmm. And uh, now his testimony has been delayed. Isn't that interesting? It's not clear. This uh, from Jonathan Turley. Long said he was willing to answer questions under oath about his controversial actions in the Russian investigation, scheduled to do so on Tuesday, today. Now he has refused. Guess why? COVID. The infection of three senators with COVID-19. However, McCabe also refuses to testify remotely. He uh, simply says that fairness dictates that he not testify at all. The basis for his refusal to appear remotely is utterly and almost comically absurd, says George Washington law professor Jonathan Turley. Well, if comically and what what was it? Comically 
transparently and comically absurd if that was the standard by which uh, you could um, take someone away, you could impugn someone, then everybody and senior leadership at FBI during the time of Jim Comey, just about everybody, would have been uh, salted away in some undisclosed location long ago. Transparently and comically absurd is the calling card of Jim Comey and Andy McCabe and so many others, including over at the CIA, it would appear. And it seems that it's persisting to some extent as the struggle to get documents to which the Senate is entitled from Christopher Wray continues. This from uh, Ron Johnson and Lindsey Graham, to some extent, the complaints about Ray. Not a lot of action taken with respect to holding him to account and to move with all due speed in producing what the oversight body wants produced. Number one, now we hear from Sean Davis at the Federalist, we heard at the end of last week, that Gina Haspel, who was John Brennan's station chief in London during his time as CIA director, is also running interference for document requests from oversight bodies. And so now we have still enemies inside the perimeter of the Trump administration that are Trump appointees not complying with the effort to pull all of the information together and present it in one unified story to the American people to help inform their decision on November 3rd. And for those who suggest that, oh, it would be political at this point for the Durham investigation to be completed or for any uh, decisions about uh, indictments to come down and so forth. Well, it would also be political to not do it, wouldn't it? I think we're past the days of the appearances of politics, with, particularly with respect to those two agencies and with respect to what transpired in 2016 and 2017. But that's me, and I'm a layman, so let's bring in an expert. We're pleased to be joined again by James Fitzgerald. He is a retired FBI special agent and famed criminal profiler from the Unabomber case. He was uh, played by Sam Worthington. In the uh, the series Manhunt that's on Netflix, which is really good, uh, Worthington plays Fitzgerald and Paul Bettany played the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. He's also uh, is Fitzgerald, the author of a series of books, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. James Fitzgerald, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yes, a pleasure. Um, am I being too hard on uh, the FBI, both Comey's FBI and Ray's FBI at present? No, I professionally and uh, behaviorally uh, would define it as a S show wrapped up in a clown convention in a bus going downhill fast. All right, let me write that um, down. That's a t- there are All technical right. terms uh, you you and your listeners can use, but now I watched uh, Comey's testimony last week, and um, I'll give him credit for at least showing up and for admitting that there were bureaucratic failures under him. You know these layers of the onion, so to speak, that he didn't think he had to uh, peel apart or, or look through. But uh, but everything else happening with McCabe and, and, of course, Strzok's name can't be left out of this. I think we coined the term on your show a few years ago, something is a Strzokism when it's clearly, clearly a lie, but someone uh, by him, but he's trying to make it sound like it's something that it's not. So we could make that a Comeyism or a, or a McCabeism. And and this whole thing is just very, very uh, problematic. Of course, there's now a, a movie out, a two-parter on uh, Comey rules. And I'm not sure if uh, when you first called, uh, your producer first called me, did you want me to you know, go over and discuss the actual Comey uh, testimony or what's being also fictitiously relayed yeah, right. in, in this particular movie? Uh, so, uh, But I know it's, it's, it's going to be Comey we talk about, so I get it. When we come back with retired FBI criminal profiler Jim Fitzgerald, I want to stick on the topic of Jim Coney's testimony and also get your impressions of what 
the future of the FBI might look like if uh, Trump were to earn a second term. More with Jim Fitzgerald when we return. The more you'll know, this is this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with retired FBI criminal profiler James Fitzgerald talking about Jim Comey's testimony, his essentially uh, admitting guilt without pleading guilty to that which happened under his watch. And the reason is because his deniability is not plausible. It is not plausible for the FBI director uh, overseeing an investigation into a presidential candidate and then the president of the United States to not be apprised of material events and material information. Like, for example, the subsource of the Steele dossier and the fact that he was the subject of a of a two year counterintelligence investigation himself by that same FBI it's just ridiculous to suggest that he doesn't know about that uh, or was so willfully blind that everybody just uh, made sure nobody told him so they could carry on this conspiracy without uh, Jim Comey's knowledge because he's, you know, he's so pure of heart that they wouldn't want to corrupt Jim Comey or they knew they couldn't corrupt Jim Comey. So they did this without his knowledge. That is preposterous. Yeah. And he, you know, and he, he even uh, being questioned by uh, Senator Blackburn, he even, um, you know, boldly claims he's done everything by he did everything by the book in this investigation. And it came to mind right away. He has one book already out that's apparently selling well and another book soon to be out. People may want to read those uh, with uh, a, a different perspective now. If he if this investigation was done by the book, I don't think his new book was written uh, by the book, and we have to take everything. And I like when she asked him if it's fiction or nonfiction. He very seriously, well, it's a nonfiction, but uh, I have a feeling there's much more fiction in there, or certainly, if not fiction, you know, clear omissions of evidentiary material that didn't quite make it into the pages of his book. What about Ray and the FBI under Ray now? Is it improving or, or you know, marginally so? Well, you know, I'm out of the FBI. I've been out for uh, almost 13 years now. I know, but I you know people. In. Yeah. I you do, know and I certainly know how to read and read between the lines. I do have some uh, problems with his leadership and with his lack of uh, overt and perhaps more aggressive investigating of what's happening here. I get this whole FBI culture thing. I suppose I was a part of it for 20 years. But in no way, shape, or form did that ever cover uh, any sort of a you know, illegal or uh, or unethical or immoral activity. Uh, you still had to do the job in an apolitical sense, and um, you know just the facts, ma'am, as uh, as Jack Webb would say in Dragnet, and just you know that's what we put on paper and that's what we use in court. Uh, but there's so much violation that happened before uh, uh, Chris Ray, and now. It, it just seems that, that information is not forthcoming, and I, I do have a problem with that. And I wouldn't be surprised if after the election, um, if, uh, if, if President Trump is reelected, you may see a change at the top of the FBI. wouldn't be for criminal purposes, whatever, and it wouldn't be quite under the uh, auspices that uh, Comey was fired. But I think you may see someone put in there um, with a, a bit more of an um, aggressive approach to what's happened in the last four to five years now, if not even longer, 
Uh, I mean, there's an article that broke today in the American Thinker about uh, where Comey and Mueller have all kinds of problems with the Clinton Foundation and what they've let go since early uh, the early 2000s. So, I mean, so much of this is just is just under the surface that I know we're just we're just chomping at the bit to get our our, our, our hands wrapped around it and bring some kind of justice. This two-tiered justice system we kept hearing about in the hearing, we need to get that uh, out of the way, make it back to one, and hold these people responsible. I got to tell you, I mean, you may have just won yourself the job, and and uh, oh, yeah. because because it seems to me that if Trump wins re-election, that that's what absolutely has to happen. When you have people like Devin Nunez sort of openly questioning the future existence of the FBI and CIA, I know those agencies aren't going to go away. That doesn't happen fast like that, and perhaps it shouldn't. But when he, when he's making a statement like that, that says we have a uh, we have a to borrow the word of the of twenty twenty systemic problem at FBI and CIA, oh, yeah. and there needs to be some real rethinking about how those agencies operate. But Dan, let me bring up real quick. We talked about the negative side in the last month or so. Two agents' names have surfaced. Uh, on board, still working agents. One is in, uh, a New York agent where I worked for seven years named John Robertson. He's the one that basically when everybody was poo-pooing the, um, the uh, Clinton emails found on Anthony Weiner's laptop, this is back in you know September, October of uh, 16, he, he went to his boss, his, uh, the, uh, the ASAC, the next boss up, and everybody was saying, oh, just leave it go, leave it go. In fact, he raced to leak that stuff. He said, no, I'm not doing it. He insisted, and he's the one that kind of forced, if not directly, indirectly, Comey's hand, where uh, Comey had to come out and say, yeah, we found these uh, hundreds of thousands of new uh, e- emails, and, uh, and, and we're, we're, we're you know, going to research them here and see what happens. And we all remember that press conference he held. Yeah. And then we also have an agent uh, out of the Washington field office named William Barnett, who, uh, who was interviewed, and he said, look, I'm convinced uh, in the uh, Mueller uh, task force the attitude was get Trump. That was their goal. He also opined that um, the Flynn case should have been shut down well before it went to you know any secondary or tertiary level. And the fact that he uh, he and his colleagues all talked about for the sole reason being on the Mueller task force, they thought they should get some kind of liability insurance. Right. And I can always I can only imagine that phone call to this some insurance company. Uh, they're talking. Yeah, we cover bureau car accidents, no problem. Bad shooting, no problem. Bad arrest, yeah, no problem. Wait a minute, you want insurance for the attempted coup of a U.S. president? <laughs> S- yeah, we don't insurance. quite cover that. Yeah, you don't yeah, have sedition, sedition insurance. Yeah, insurance. right. Yeah, it's going to be a ten million dollar, uh, you know, deductible, and then um, then we'll talk after that. So uh, no, your so, point. Uh, so these yeah. are two guys, Robertson and Barnett, two good agents. Uh, regular street agents, they're the ones that should have been running this investigation all along. Obviously, you know, one or two layers of supervision up, not out of headquarters. Any investigation run out of headquarters, I won't say it's always a, a, a criminal uh, issue, but it's the, the people that make it that high in the Bureau are usually not the best investigators. They may be good managers, or they may not be good managers, but for whatever reason, they make it there, and uh, they're not the ones who should be handling investigations. And again, Kudos to Robertson and Barnett. They're just representative of many, many men and women, agents, analysts, et cetera, in the FBI doing the right thing and are so upset about this 
clown convention s show that's running downhill yeah no your point your point about the rank and file is well taken i i i do appreciate that james Fitzgerald is retired fbi agent and criminal profiler of unabomber fame author of the ser- of the series of books a journey to the center of the mind and again if you haven't checked out that uh, netflix series need something new to binge watch manhunt which uh, profiles james Fitzgerald and the whole team that brought the unabomber to justice James and Cheryl, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Building on our discussion at the top of the hour with Dr. Kevin Pham, I wanted to direct people's attention to this. The American Institute for Economic Research, uh, from October 1st to the 4th, they hosted a meeting of top epidemiologists, economists, journalists, to discuss the global emergency created by the use of state compulsion in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The result is what they're calling the Great Barrington Declaration. This is, I believe, AIER is located in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Thus, the that's the derivation of the name. The primary authors and signers of the document, friends of our show, Dr. Malton Kaldorf, who we've had on just last week, professor of medicine at Harvard, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford, Dr. Sunetra Gupta, Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at the University of Oxford. We haven't had uh, Dr. Gupta on yet, and we need to do that. We need to correct that. But here's what the uh, declaration uh, suggests. Coming both from the left and the right and around the world, we've devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come, with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage, with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and the infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of the public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to them and other safety protocols. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing, staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are at more risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection conferred upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. So far, this has been signed, this petition, by more than 1,500 medical and public health scientists, 1,700 medical practitioners, and 26,000 members of the general public. And this is just in the first 24 hours since it was posted. 
So just the critical mass, the idea that this is important to know because you're not on an island. And just as you get when you listen to this show, we talk to people who know public health professionals and medical doctors about all of these matters. And you've heard their views. And there's some divergence even in the the individuals that we've spoken with that will speak to us. And that's fine. The science has never settled, as is often said in this program. But uh, the top line takeaways largely are, particularly with respect to education and a reopening of the parts of Western economies that are closed. And uh, this, which you can, I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. I think I retweeted Martin Kildorf's uh, uh, tweet of it. You should uh, spread around, unlike COVID, be a super spreader for the Great Barrington Declaration. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft. We turn our attention back to a school choice. If there is... Another COVID relief bill, COVID aid bill to happen. Uh, It's going to be up to Senate Republicans and the president to ensure that it still includes as part of the school funding relief, the scholarship funding that the president and Senate Republicans initially conceived should be in there. Opportunity scholarships, the promotion of school choice. This is something that has become more and more pronounced in terms of presidential and Capitol Hill Republican support in the era of COVID-19, including last week when President Trump delivered his prepared remarks for the Al Smith dinner in New York City and a direct appeal to Catholic voters. He talked about his support for Catholic schooling, but uh, support for school choice more generally. My administration is working to advance school choice. It was my great honor to help the Catholic Church with its schools. They needed hundreds of millions of dollars nationwide. And I got it for him. Nobody else. I got it for him. I hope you remember that on November 3rd. But I got it for him. Uh, Subtlety, not the president's strong suit. uh, Nonetheless, uh, between President Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, you have a really strong advocate for competition at the K through 12 level like we haven't had in the White House. That's not an an overstatement. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Ray DeMonico. He is a senior fellow and director of education policy at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute recently commissioned a a very interesting survey of likely voters in five swing states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, and North Carolina, to see where the uh, majority of voters are on the matter of school choice that the president is promoting. Ray, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, tell us what uh, what you found with this uh, survey research and uh, support for school choice in those those key uh, Midwestern and, in the case of uh, North Carolina, southern states. Sure. I should start by saying that the issue that you led with, the support for opportunity scholarships, is something we've also been following and offering our opinions on. We are interested in all forms of school choice, you know, opportunity scholarships, those type of things that exist in many states. We followed very closely the Supreme Court ruling in the Espinoza case. But in this particular survey, we focused our attention on charter schools. Mm-hmm. And we did that because it seemed to us that coming out of the summer political conventions, 
There was too little discussion of educational policy, particularly on how it relates to greater educational opportunity in lower income and urban communities. And this was happening at a time when the nation was involved in a, in a deep and sometimes divisive discussion about issues of equality and opportunity for communities of color. We chose these five states because we thought they would be key in the election and would be getting a lot of attention, both from the political parties and the media. And I should mention that Rasmussen Reports did the polling for us in uh, the last week in August and the first week in September. As background, charter schools uh, were at one point in our country under both President Obama and President Bush an issue which had bipartisan support. Under both of those administrations, the number of charter schools grew across the country. There was research indicating the positive impact that they were having, particularly in urban areas and particularly on lower-income youngsters. But the tide began to turn towards the end of the Obama years. In 2017, the NAACP called for a moratorium on the growth of charters. And the nation's largest teachers union, the National Education Association, went further and called for charters to be placed under the control of local school districts, not autonomous, as they typically were. In the current campaign, the Democratic platform calls for greater regulation of charters. And as you mentioned in your intro, the Trump administration has voiced support for school choice, but it's been very hard to get much done in DC. Well, and also, too, of course, uh, I mean, you know, the K through 12 education is primarily state and local function, too. So there's only so much the feds can do. That's right. So the first question we asked uh, the people who responded to this survey, what likely voters in these five states, was that they believe that giving parents the right to choose their children's education improved the overall quality of education or did it, did it harm that quality? And, and we did this because one of the, uh, you know, the, the opposition to charters and all forms of choice is this notion that somehow it, 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 it harms the overall effort of, of district schools or traditional district schools. But in a, in a survey, about half the respondents said they believe that giving parents the right to choose actually improved the quality of education overall. And in three of the states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, this belief was much greater amongst black respondents than it was amongst whites or the general population. At the same time, in each state, less than 20% of the respondents said that they believe the choice lowers the quality of education. So there's not much support for that position that most opposition to charters and choice is grounded in. And just the, 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 the racial component of this, too, because you note across the five states surveyed, four times the number of black students as compared to white students are attending those charter schools. And so how uh, the support for charter schools varies across racial lines. Absolutely. We see in, uh, in many cities, I've done a lot of studies in my own city of uh, New York, you know, many, many white parents avoid the traditional district schools, but the group second most likely to seek choice are the black families in the city. Uh, a great number are in, in charter schools and a, and a great number also are in private and religious schools in the city. So there is this need for alternatives, particularly in, in community, communities of color and lower income areas. And it, it seems to me, too, I mean, the, the charter school, I mean, it's interesting. You, you made you made mention of the teachers union. They've gotten even more combative recently during the pandemic with uh, L.A. Teachers Union, for example, saying we're, we're not going to come back to work until uh, you um, eliminate charter schools or moratorium on charter schools. Uh, you, know, you know, making those uh, some of the contingencies for which teachers would return using the opportunity of the leverage they thought they had. And um, 
And and the charters is it's so interesting to me because it's essentially a concession that the K through 12 system needs to innovate and it's not innovating. Otherwise, why would you relax restrictions on charters and allow them to operate outside the centrally planned authority? And nobody seems to connect the dot that, you know, once you start to say, well, we should have competition, we shouldn't have central planning. It inevitably opens up the entire system the way that we have the entire system open at the collegiate level. As, and that's really the point, and that's what the teachers' union wants to prevent. They, they can no longer tolerate the incremental expansion of charter schools because the premise of charter schools undermines the premise of the centrally planned school district. Sure, it, it sure does. We're also seeing in the current crisis of COVID, I can't speak to the situation in Chicago, but in the nation's largest public school system, New York City, where I'm located, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, the, the centrally managed bureaucratic uh, Department of Education that's run by the city of New York continues to fumble the opening of school this year. Meanwhile, many charter schools and, and many private, most private and religious schools are open in one form or another. And, and key to that has been that in those two sectors, people have been able to work out local solutions. There's not, there's not a uniform policy across the city. So the city's largest and one of the most well-known charter school networks, Success Academy, which gets very, uh, very extraordinary results, has decided to go all remote learning through the end of December. But they're doing it right. The kids actually, they, they, as much as possible, their school day is being replicated remotely. The district has been unable to do that, largely because they've been having difficulties working things out with the teachers' union, uh, and they continue to seek this citywide response. So the point you make about the, the failings of centrally dictated or managed uh, large systems is, is exactly our point. And, and uh, you know, I wish we had more time, but, but this seems to me uh, a key data point from the survey research as well. Survey asked individuals to express their support for the concept of publicly funded K-12 through school choice. Uh, 66 yeah. to 70 percent either strongly or somewhat supported the concept. 65 to 77 percent uh, support for publicly funded school choice was higher among, uh, at 65 to 77 percent, was higher among uh, black Americans. And it just seems to me, look, the the teachers unions, I know they have political power, but in terms of the standing of their argument against school choice, they're essentially the modern day Orville Faubuses. They are losing or they are they are tethered to a position that they cannot hold for much longer. Yes. Unfortunately, they've gotten some, uh, you know, some support in the national uh, political parties. And and we see some of these, uh, you know, as, as the Democratic Party in some states moves further to the left, they seem to be abandoning their base of uh, African-American and other communities of color in large cities who have been, as you pointed out before, the, the greatest users of charter schools and school choice and the communities in which there's a, there's a need for alternatives to the, to the failed district public schools. He is Ray DeMonico. He is senior fellow and director of educational policy at the Manhattan Institute. I will uh, tweet out this Manhattan Institute uh, study. This is uh, well worth reading. Uh, and, uh, and 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 sharing too, Ray. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having me. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Jason Furman was uh, chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under Obama, so you can't be too surprised by this piece. Biden's tax plan would spur economic growth, but that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be taken to task for his crimes against economics 101. Joe Biden's proposals to raise taxes on households making 400 grand annually and on corporations are broadly consistent with the tax systems under the successful economies of President Clinton and Obama to reject the premise. It would devote revenue to an ambitious set of proposals to expand economic growth and ensure it more broadly. The he cites models that suggest that uh, the bad tax plan would affect economic growth positively, so on and so forth. How could a plan that raises revenue have so little impact on growth? The Biden plan would only partly repeal the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Trump tax cuts, which also had very little impact on economic growth. And it's and fun with numbers follows. I won't get into that. Smart provisions that would improve the tax code and economic growth addresses the shortcoming of global intangible low tax income, a new category introduced under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that uh, uh, he calls a loophole for companies to reduce their tax bills. Uh, he um, says of the plan in, in toto, it would boost the economy as near-term stimulus massively outweighs the immediate tax increases in both quantity and bang for buck. Goldman Sachs, another uh, outfit that uh, likes to likes rent-seeking, the rent-seeking version of capitalism, found the uh, stimulus would add nearly one percentage point to annual growth rate in in uh, year one, expanded child care, and so on and so forth. This is all intended to sort of lull you into to, to sleep, which is which is why I'm reading it as such. That's the whole point. The whole point is just to go through this. This is pro forma stuff. This is stuff that we know worked. It worked during Obama and Clinton. There's no problem here. And uh, it's a very modest, moderate, reasonable approach to economic growth. Uh, It's just that none of that is true. None of that is true. Um, The uh, better characterization of this comes from Joel Ross over at Citadel Realty Advisors. Uh, he will add clean energy programs to renovate 4 million buildings plus 2 million homes by mandate, I assume. Also, cash for, re- cash for research on 5G AI batteries. Instead of tax credits to private companies, R&D grants, will be government-run research programs. Uh, it will take years to accomplish, will not be some instant boost to the economy, nor is a job creator, as Obama found, the shovel-ready jobs. Biden mistakenly assumes infrastructure spending will mean huge hiring immediately. The plan will be to send $8 trillion over four years more than current spending levels. There'll be another two trillion more for pre-K college plus increased teachers pay. He owes a lot of he owes the teachers unions for all that support. Free early education for all kids, free college, community college for anyone earning 125 grand, which is just about everyone. Forget student debt, more health care spending, child care, elder care, plus increased Social Security payments, plus housing subsidies. All these are government run programs. Uh, you might ask how all this is paid for. Simple. Higher taxes on all of you and corporations. It's clear there's not enough tax money to cover all this, plus with the Bernie people and the far left add to the list. So the whole people earning 400 grand, over 400 grand, are not really impacted by higher taxes. Number one, that's not true. Number two, uh, that's not going to be enough. Um, They acknowledge big deficits every year, especially in the early years, to get to the goal of full employment. Then they go on to say interest rates will rise to 4.5% on the 10-year due to the growth in the economy and the spending. But it's okay due to the low rates in early years. 
This ignores, as Joel Ross writes, the long-term result of massive deficits. They don't explain how interest on the national debt gets paid at 4.5% 10-year rates without raising taxes even more or making major reductions in discretionary spending. They do acknowledge that the flood of entitlements will be a disincentive for work and savings, but that impact will be offset by the growth in the economy. As he points out, Ross, that seems to be an irreconcilable difference. We have disincentives to work, but people will still go back to work. Right. We just saw what happened when the extra 600 bucks, which they claim incorrectly, had no real impact on the incentive to work for less. People um, didn't go back to work. They acknowledge stock prices will not grow much over 10 years. All dividends will be negatively impacted by the higher taxes. They acknowledge corporate earnings will be negatively impacted, so stock prices will also be negatively impacted. Again, seems irreconcilable that if there are lower stock prices, that raises the cost of capital for investment and lowers 401k values, which disincentivizes consumers to spend due to the negative wealth effect. This also means retirees living off dividends have less income, so need for more government spending on Social Security and other things. Also mean pension funds are even in more deficits and potential inability to pay. So you have your lower income due to high taxes. Your stock portfolio no longer earns you good returns. Your dividend income shrinks. That's the good news. Uh, This uh, pro forma description of... Uh, what the binomics would mean as uh, described by Jason Furman, the Wall Street Journal, is a joke. This doesn't even get into the hammering that real estate would take, including the elimination of 1031 exchanges, which is in the Biden comrade Bernie manifesto. You want to completely crater the real estate market and disincentivize uh, commercial development? Uh, Do binomics. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, I know this is all dense to many, but hey, uh, look, uh, this this Biden is getting a pass on the issue that people say is their number one issue, which is the economy and the prospects for economic growth and opportunity and wage uh, increases and so forth. And uh, there's just and and this is on the Trump campaign, too. There is not enough detail being provided to really drill down on just exactly how painful this would be across the board, equal shared misery, as is the socialists want, uh, if uh, even a fraction of what Joe Biden has proposed in his plan is enacted. Okay. If you ever like look at something and there's just there's so many different ways you want to attack it and you get confused, and I felt like my head was going to explode as you were saying it. So I'm going to start just at the basis of what an enormous lie this whole tax plan is, because every different every Democrat has um, you know pledged their allegiance to MMT, modern monetary theory, or or some sort of cousin of it. If I'm boring you by talking about modern monetary theory, I'm sorry. It can be a little bit dry, but people got to understand it when it's happening. But based in that is, is the belief that taxes don't fund federal spending, that just you know, the federal government can create money and pay for it. If they're the issuer of the currency, they can do that at any time. And the only reason we would ever raise taxes, and this is, by the way, in, within MMT, who they all adhere to, is to uh, take liquidity out of the market uh, to fight inflation. So that's why you would raise taxes. So them right now just painting the rich and the businesses with all this money, that we're going to tax them to fund this. They know full well by saying that that it's just not true, and they have no intention of doing that, and they don't even need to do that based on their own theories. All it is is punitive. All it is is you want to sell this notion that some people who are doing well, it's because they took some sort of unfair advantages, and we're going to come in on a white horse and write that off. The notion that you are going to start taxing businesses more, and that's somehow going 
going to be good for the overall economy is insulting to everybody. The only thing I wonder when I read these people who write it, do they have a, is hatred gotten so into their head that they, they believe these things that they're writing? Or is it just a big ruse they're pulling on the people? Because it's one of the two. It, it's, it's completely asinine. You got me all worked up again. When we come back with CNBC's Jim Uriel, I want to continue our discussion of Bidenomics and uh, get Jim's assessment of the market reaction. Were any approximation of the Biden-Bernie economics plan to be implemented? More with Uriel right up here. Show.com. We're back talking Bidenomics with CNBC's Jim Urio before the break, talking about uh, some of his tax plans specifically. And Jim, you got a little worked up, and I was getting a little worked up, in part because uh, these individuals constructing this plan have never developed or built anything. And then they accuse, of course, people of not building what they actually did build. Of course they do. And these policies in the Biden-Bernie Sanders plan speak to that. I mean, it would bring the economy to a grinding halt. And that, that is not an overstatement. And, and by the way, you don't need to be in commercial development to appreciate this as I was going through. Real wages, not to mention the value of your 401k. Do you care about that stuff? I do, personally. I'll take it a step further, too, is that there might be this mirage, the kind of thing that happened during the Obama years, where the real negative economic impacts of a policy like that aren't felt as painfully because the government's going to counterbalance that with just massive spending. The Federal Reserve is going to keep rates at zero as far out the curve as they can to make up for this awful economic policy. And then guess what happens when that goes on too long is we do this bubble bust thing again, like we've done twice in the last 25 years. And the people who are left in the dust of that, it's just terrible policy. And that's the one thing that could happen. But the second thing that could happen is a real live currency crisis, all of the one we've seen in Venezuela, and we've seen so many different times. And those things, like when all of a sudden the people who have money, that money is worthless. That's when the, the awful things start happening. That's when, you know, city like Caracas, Venezuela, didn't have a rat or a stray cat problem anymore because people are chasing them down for a food source. That's the kind of thing that happens in a currency crisis. And I don't even mean to be melodramatic. It really genuinely happens. And that is what they're risking. Joel Ross, whose commentary I was citing, he says, uh, if the uh, Dems win, I'm out of the market. I'm better off with cash even after taxes. If uh, they get control, cap gains goes 39% if you're very high income or if you decide to liquidate some of your portfolio. So paying lower taxes now is better than 39% on top of losing principal. Do you agree with that? I don't think I do, and here's why. Because I think the one thing that these ridiculously high tax plans and high regulatory environments, if the Obama administration was a blueprint, one thing they are pretty good at doing is artificially inflating risk asset prices, meaning when they start to realize that their economic policy is bad, let's say that, they'll start pumping more money into it, and, and the money won't go where they want it to. The money just ends up in risk assets, and that's what we saw in tech stocks in 2000 and real estate in 2007. Do I think the market could do well under Democrats? Sadly, I do, but it's based on their incompetence more than anything else. This is difficult for the market to predict, but um, you know, markets are always future-looking. 
And uh, the precedent we set with lockdowns, now you have over at Market Watch. We need to act boldly now if we're to avoid economy-wide lockdowns to halt climate change. This from Mariana Mazzucato, who's a professor in economics at the University College of London. Now we're talking about economic lockdowns to halt climate change. And if it's a terrible idea that Europe adopts, you can be sure it'll be a terrible idea that Democrat socialists here will be want to adopt. When I hear something that's so ridiculous, absurd, radical, really, you know, comical. So I, I love when people say that to show the the level of their idiocy. But I, I'm I'm not sure that people are going to do that. But I hope they do. Well, and just uh, one other uh, opinion. Look, I mean, these opinions carry weight and they influence policymakers, and they also give cover to policymakers. Pope Francis has chimed in again on a topic he clearly knows very little about. That's economics. It should stick to the catechism. But he says the coronavirus pandemic has proved that the quote unquote magic theories of market capitalism had failed. The world needs a new type of policies that promote dialogue and solidarity, rejects war at all costs. That's actually called capitalism, uh, the, 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 the philosophy, the, uh, pol- the uh, new type of politics that he's looking for is actually capitalism, uh, you know, volunteer exchanges. But this the, the thing that he does, magic theories of market capitalism, this persists. Voodoo economics, magic theories. We haven't done a good job at explaining to people uh, what I just said simply, which is capitalism or free markets is just Jim and Dan freely exchanging a good or service. Yeah, and we have to remember, too, that capitalism is a system that has a ton of flaws, and the outcomes that come out are not always happy, and they don't always seem fair. Some of the outcomes are bad, and they, it needs to be gently massaged. The thing that you have to remember, though, is just it's a thousand times better than any other system. And the other system, I mean, socialism was tried 24 times in the last 50 years, and it's failed 24 times miserably. And people point to the Nordic model and act like that's socialism. It's quite far from socialism. In the Nordic model, companies are encouraged and given the tools they need to succeed in the model that they're trying to push on us here that that's not the same thing at all and then when you say you want to lock down the economy to to, to, i'm still reeling from locking down the economy to save the environment i want to save the environment i'm a big fan of the environment but having people starve to death doesn't seem like the right way to go about it jim urio cnbc contributor and the owner of brand speaking of restaurants jim thanks for joining us appreciate it thank you guys for having me i'll see you Welcome back to the show and moving from our discussion of Bidenomics with Jim Urio, which is just our discussion of Bidenisms more generally. He's uh, done it again, has Creep Show Joe. I mean, there's so many uh, facets to Joe Biden, the candidate, Joe Biden, the politician. One of them is saying patronizing things about black Americans. <laughs> I mean, repeatedly. And uh, for all the talk about uh, race and who is uh, properly racially sensitive and so forth, uh, Joe Biden yesterday uh, talking about, uh, you know, the reason he's able to be up and around is because. Geez, the reason I was able to stay sequestered in my home is because some black woman was able to stack the grocery shelf. 
Mm-hmm. How would that be received if President Trump had said the same thing, or any other Republican for that matter? And remember, uh, isolated incident. Oh, come on, you know what he's trying to say. Sure, just as like I, I know what he was trying to say when he said this. Yes, and by the way, what you all know, but most people don't know, Unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I know. Just like I was supposed to know what he's saying when he said this. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Bob Johnson and others didn't seem to be so concerned about trying to figure out what he was really saying when he said that uh, last comment to Charlemagne the God and radio and his radio program. But okay, I know just as like we're supposed to. Yeah, I know what he's saying. I know what he's trying to say when he said this. And the other thing we should do is we should challenge these students. We should challenge students in these schools to have advanced placement programs in these schools. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids, wealthy kids, black kids. Yeah, boy, you really mean it. Great. So there's no confusion. Um, but uh, any malapropism or misstatement or a statement that lacks clarity from President Trump, of course, is supposed to be received in the light less, uh, least favorable, least possibly favorable to President Trump. Uh, all of these Bidenisms on race are to be excused because why? This is the same guy who um, in Philadelphia Inquirer story from 87 campaigned in Alabama while campaigning in Alabama in April. Biden talked of his sympathy for the South, bragged of an award he had received from George Wallace in 1973 and said, quote, we Delawareans were on the South side in the Civil War, unquote. Yeah, you you know, I you know what he's saying. Do I? Uh huh. Uh, Perhaps uh, this is why. In their endorsement of President Trump for reelection, this is not something we get to say very much or probably will have the opportunity to say. So I might as well take advantage of it. An editorial board, a newspaper endorsing President Trump's reelection. The Las Vegas Review Journal, which is the largest daily in the state of Nevada. Uh, they write, it's uh, worth noting that while the president's vocal critics delight in tarring him as a bigot, it was Mr. Trump who in 2018 signed the First Step Act, a bipartisan milestone of criminal justice reform that shortened prison terms for thousands of nonviolent federal inmates and led to commutations for thousands of others, many of them minorities. Uh, they also uh, pull back, say more globally, the most pressing matter facing Nevada and the nation in the coming months and even years will be the, re- uh, the uh, resurrection of the economy post-pandemic. Mr. Trump's record on job creation and economic growth speaks for itself. Mr. Biden disingenuously blames the current administration for the economic downturn. Does Biden do anything that's not disingenuous? My parenthetical remark. But anyway, blames the current administration for the economic downturn, implying that Mr. Trump had the power to stop a worldwide pandemic. That's desperate nonsense. Prior to the lockdowns, U.S. growth was more consistently robust than it had been in years, and wages were continuing their upward trend for workers. For all his flaws, the Las Vegas Review-Journal concludes, Donald Trump stands in forceful contrast to the relentless progressive attacks on this nation that deny and minimize the advances we have made over the decades to better reflect and honor our founding ideals. Right. In the meantime, 
Joe Biden is uh, telling us more apocryphal stories, the fabulous that he is. Joe Biden uh, responding in a town hall setting to uh, the inquiry as to whether or not uh, he behaved the same way that President Trump, that he accuses President Trump of behaving, that President Trump does sometimes behave in a a bullying-like fashion, to employ that overused term, when it came to calling the president a clown, when it came to telling the president to uh, shut up. And here's uh, Joe Biden's uh, corn pop sequel story. I'm used to bullies. I, uh, I used to stutter when I was a kid. I learned how to fight. I got a nickname. They call me shoe leather. I was little, but they could beat me up and they hurt, I hurt them in the process. Look, uh... <laughs> they, they call me shoe leather. Sure. Of course they do. And in the 80s, uh, Joe, when you were doing uh, Bruce Lee parodies, they called you Bruce. They called me Bruce. 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 No, Bruce. Johnny boy got a funny mouth. Mm-hmm. They call me Bruce, a superhero America can believe in. And then uh, they called him something else when he fronted the Ting Tings. They call me Hell. They call me Stacy. They call me Hell. Tara Reid on 60 Minutes Australia, she called him something else. This is the woman who Joe Biden, who accuses Joe Biden, former Senate staffer for Joe Biden, accuses Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her. The kind where he smiles, it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? What do you say to that, shoe leather? Huh? Corn pop going to back your play there? What about uh, the kids at the pool that used to feel your leg hair or whatever that ridiculous story was? I mean, how many instances of this in concentrated in particular topic areas do you really want to contemplate honestly shoe leather biden that's the latest and greatest while he's uh continuing to say the most tone deaf at best patronizing at worst racist comments in the direction of black americans And that's just going to go by without notice? I don't think so. It may go by without reporting by the D.C. press corps, but it's not going to go unnoticed. I don't think so. This is Dan Proft. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and we uh, close it out today with a bit of a brief discussion about the Second Amendment. John Law Jr. writing in the Wall Street Journal, yes, the Democrats are coming for your guns. They always are. I don't know why this should be news for most two-way advocates. It's not, but there's an effort to certainly soft-pedal how anti-gun, despite Supreme Court decisions and the individual protections enshrined in the law, open carry, as well as concealed carry laws in all 50 states and D.C. Despite that, the Biden platform, here again, long list of gun control proposals, national gun licensing, red flag laws, which led judges seize guns without a hearing, 
or mental health evaluation. Bans on semi-automatic guns that look like military weapons. The first on Biden's list, as Lott recounts, is a proposal to make gun manufacturers civilly liable for misuse of guns they sell. This means people could sue manufacturers and sellers whenever a crime, accident, or suicide occurs with a gun. The straightforward result would be to put gun makers out of business. Can't sell that in swing states. Uh, so you get the Joe Biden, you know, get a shotgun kind of bull jive and the exchange he had with that Michigan auto worker back during the primary where he suggested the Michigan auto worker was wrong. An example of the soft peddling, you know, I'm going to pretend I'm moderate on guns. I'm going to pretend I respect people's right to protect themselves. The individual right to self-protection is enshrined in the Second Amendment. I'm going to pretend I respect that, but I just want reasonable restrictions on the margins. It's pretend. I pretend so I can get in, then I get in and I throw in with the gun banners, the John Paul Stevens. Let's figure out a way to end run the Constitution, repeal the Second Amendment formally or informally, depending on the political support. Well, Project Veritas is on the case. James O'Keefe and company got a Mark Kelly staffer to admit what we know to be true. Mark Kelly, the Democrat candidate for Senate in Arizona, that hotly contested race, Mark Kelly versus Martha McSally, hotly contested state at the presidential level, too. This is um, Angelica Carpio from Mission for Arizona, which is basically a Democrat party, on Mark Kelly on guns. I just think he wants to get those independents. He wants to get those Republicans that don't trust Trump anymore. But one of their main issues is guns. So I don't think he's fully, like, been out there saying, like, I want, like, a full gun, like, control type measure. And I think it's because he just wants to get elected first, and then he wants to go first. The problem is this is such a consequential state right. soon, and like I think he's trying trying to be elected and then implement the measures. Yeah, you know, sort of are defaming your campaign. Can't trust some of their politicians saying one thing, he's going to do another when he gets in, or at least that's a promise. So he's lying to somebody at some point, or will be at some point, isn't he? And again, contrast this with uh, what President Trump ran on in 2016, and what he acted in furtherance of to the extent he didn't accomplish the commitments he made. So there's the Trump approach and the McSally approach, or there's the Mark Kelly, Joe Biden approach. I guess it's a question of whether you want to be dealt with straight or you want to be lied to. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. We'll be back tomorrow and taking your calls live as soon as the vice presidential debate ends between uh, Vice President Pence and Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris. Expect the last half of the show. Uh, we'll have 90 minutes of your phone calls post Pence-Harris debate. Thank you for joining us. This is the Dan Proft Show.